I'm William Thomas, a producer at Empathetic Machines. In this series of podcasts, we explore the concept of mission. More specifically, we explore why people get committed to a mission-driven business. Figuring out how to deliver profits to shareholders and owners is hard enough. Why would people get involved in a business that has goals extending beyond this? What is it about these people that develop the focus on a societal or some other sort of benefit? We produce these podcasts with a company called Andorage, a distinctively mission-driven company. The Andorage website states that the company is all about reinventing wellness. The company develops CBD-rich, full cannabis flower extracts. So that's the mission, reinventing wellness. Each podcast will show how one individual came to this mission. Now, these individuals are influenced by big events like the Civil Rights Movement, the HIV-AIDS epidemic, 9-11. Big events, however, only provide a backdrop. What's interesting here is how life events accumulate over time to form this mission commitment. I think you really enjoyed the stories. A quick final note before we get started. For compelling stories, come here to Empathetic Machines. For medical advice, consult an expert. Consult your doctor. This is not a medical advice show. Meet Isaac Foster, the CEO of Andourage. Well, I guess all stories start in the beginning. And my story actually starts in the civil rights movements in Mississippi, where my mother, who's German, was active, and my father was an organizer. They met, fell in love in in a time when that wasn't uh, legal. (laughs) And so my story was begun. Because of the inability for them to get married, my mother had to return to Germany. So I was born in Germany. And my father ended up moving from Mississippi to New York City to go to Queens College. And so when I was one and a half, my mother and I returned to America into the bowels of Harlem during the Harewood Wars. Well, that sort of a childhood story has to have had an impact on, uh, on the way you think about things. I, I think it endowed me with uh, a view that you really have to question not not challenge, but question established laws, norms, rules, and try to get to their essence. Because my conception was illegal uh, at the time, and now it you know it's considered normal. And so I think as we look at cannabis, we're also going through a transition where, for many years, it has been vilified and demonized. And only now are we really taking a step back and, and looking at its true applications. That's a fantastic segue. So I think we were about to talk about the heroin wars. Yes. You know, there have been lots of movies and documentaries made about it. But back in the late 60s, early 70s, with the soldiers returning from, from Vietnam, we had Harlem was just a wash in heroin. And that ravaged our communities. And, you know, some of my most vivid childhood memories are ducking from machine gun fire between competing drug gangs and then the, the rest of the devastation of widespread addiction and criminality on a community. How did this have an impact on, on the community? Well, only a small percentage were involved in the industry, but for the rest of us, we were captives of a war zone. And obviously it had tremendous impact on poverty and quality of life and safety. There was an interesting uh, sort of set of laws at the time around real estate that made it more profitable for landlords to hold empty buildings than to have 
buildings with tenants in them. And what this led to was widespread arson. And so I was quite fortunate in that it didn't happen to my building, but from my window as a child, I watched across the street from me, building after building after building go up in flames. And I distinctly remember in one case, uh, a child clutching a teddy bear and the, and the only thing that the family saved from the building was a mattress and that teddy bear and themselves. And that's why when before Harlem looks totally different today, but for a long period of time, when it had all the, the burnt out buildings, what's lost in that story to many people is that there was an economic cause directly tied to laws around real estate and taxes and what that meant for the people that owned the buildings. So in your view, were the heroin war and these uh, economic and legal infrastructure issues, were they additive or how did they interact? They were in parallel. The, The burnt out buildings, though, did provide ample cover for for gangs to move in, for drug houses to open up. And it wasn't caused by, but it facilitated the illicit drug trade. Let's get back to your specific journey. What's next? So, you know, I, I grew up in New York. It was a really interesting place back in the early 70s. It, it, you know, I, I laugh because I'm, I'm a parent myself. And today we worry about kids because they spend all this time on screens, but we have serious controls on them, right? Back then, we all ran wild. I mean, at the age of 13 or 14, I already had a subway pass and me and all the other kids, we had free reign over all of Manhattan. And we did. We ran around like in packs. But it, it was a, a really interesting place to grow up because of the cultural diversity. The my, my Both of my parents were educators. And so I got to fully experience all of the, the resources, the museums, the, I mean, the, the American Museum of Natural History. As, as a teenager, I knew every single room, every exhibit, because you could literally go there as a kid by yourself anytime you wanted to and walk in. And because all you had to do to get in was a donation, you could give them like a nickel. <laughs> and I actually went to junior high school right across the street from, from that museum. And you know, it really gives you a, a broad worldview of history. I went to New York City Public Schools. I, I was fortunate uh, in that for high school, I got to go to Bronx Science. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a magnet school for all of New York City. Only about 3,000 kids attended it. You had to test to get in. And it was really, it was a great experience from the perspective of all the kids didn't live in the neighborhood of the high school. We lived all over the five boroughs, right? From 8 million people, the set of 3,000. And it, it was really a fascinating place to go to high school and, and prepared me well, I thought, for you know what was to come. Did you leave the city then? You know, it's funny. So because my mother was German, growing up, I it lived in these two very separate worlds. So I, I lived in you know Harlem and the heroin wars and all that that we discussed. But in the summers, my mother would drop me on a plane at JFK and, and, I, and I would fly by myself, fly to her parents. And I think the first time I went, I was seven years old and her parents picked me up and I, I got to experience an entirely different world. Living in Germany for six to eight weeks each summer, 
and being part of that culture and that life, it just, it, it's growing up, it made me very sort of conflicted in terms of what, what was I an American? Was I an, a German? And so when I got ex- accepted to college, I had I'd done so with a one-year deferment. And so when I was 18, I moved to Germany for a year and I worked as an apprentice in, uh, in an antenna factory and I was an apprentice in their business division. And so I got to learn all the different parts of the factory and it was fascinating. And I learned about German life and German economic systems. And it was really through that, that I discovered at the end of the day, I'm really an American. <laughs> and, and so I came back and I, I went to school. Isaac, before, before we, yes. before we leave that, was there a particular moment or decision where that lightning sh- struck or was it sort of a buildup of experiences that was there a moment? Was it an epiphany? Do you think it was Definitely in a pit. So Germany has a very different social structure than we do. And I, I think it's a great system. It doesn't really have a place for entrepreneurs. It, do, it may seem that it does more so now, but because it's such a heavily regulated country and the relationship between employer and employee is so much more like a marriage than dating it it doesn't really foster an entrepreneurial environment and i know i was only 18 at the time but uh part of what always i always gravitated to in america was the idea you could you could be anything no matter where you started if you focused on it you could get somewhere and that mobility doesn't really exist in German society. And while it's very easy to get to the same place where everybody else is, and and I like that, I always wanted to do a lot more. And so that's what stuck out to me. That's powerful. So so you've had this moment where you recognize you're an American. What did you do when you returned to the U.S.? I went to Embry-Riddle in Florida. It's not everybody's familiar with the school, but it's it's an aeronautical university, top aeronautical university in the world. And I was originally studying aviation business administration. This was back in the 80s and, and aviation was, I mean, it, it, aviation's going through changes today, right? It's, it's kind of wild. But back in the 80s, it, we went through the deregulation of the airlines and that significantly changed the economic prospects of a young man going to school. And that coupled with some very serious health issues in my family. Unfortunately, after two years of studying there, I had to come back to New York. And in fact, not only did I have to come back to New York, I had to go work full time to help support myself and my family. And so I came back to New York. I did for about a year and a half go to night school at Baruch, but I ended up in the construction trade and I was fortunate there within about six months of working for a company, I got elevated to field manager. And so I went from a guy carrying uh, buckets of, of uh, compound and sheetrock to running three or four job sites simultaneously. And that was really sort of my first aha moment in terms of I, I really loved I love the complexity of all of the moving parts and organizing them and schedules and that it was also measurable. To what do you attribute the rapid rise? That can be, um, that environment, based on my experience, it can be hard to have that sort of mobility in the hierarchy. 
I get, I don't, you know, I've never thought about that. <laughs> I, I guess I got lucky. The company I worked for, you know, there were a lot of people in the field and, and the owner of the company, I guess, recognized something in me. And yeah, I just, he just, he said he needed someone that he could train to run all the operations. And I, I guess I didn't have a deep skill in the field, right? So I wasn't like a 10-year carpenter or an electrician. I, I, I was just a laborer. And I guess when you start in construction, everybody kind of starts as a laborer and then one of the trades picks you up, right? They see something in you. And so the, the trade that picked me up was the, the GC. That makes sense. You took this forward to your next step, as I recall, as you moved out of construction. Well, that's it wasn't that clean of a transition. So after working as a field manager for about a year, I then opened my own construction company. And I did that for four years. I was focused on interior renovations in New York City, which is great. I, I got to build out multi-million dollar apartments. And, you know, there's something very exciting about that. But it, it didn't feel like something really that was going to get me where I wanted to be in life. And I had a friend and he was uh, working on Wall Street and he said, you know, this is where the action is. And, and, and I, I saw his transformation because he, he had also worked in construction and he went from working in million dollar apartments to living in one. And I thought, that's kind of the change I'm looking for. And so I, I didn't really know much about it. I, I started out at, at a firm as a cold caller. Back in the days when, when your phone would ring and it would be somebody trying to sell you stock, I, I was one of those guys. And, and then an institutional desk. So, you know, there's different types of brokers, right? You've got retail brokers, you've got institutional brokers. And an inst I got recruited to an institutional desk. And that actually fit me a lot better than, than a retail desk because I liked talking to big institutions. It was a much more thorough conversation. They did a lot of due diligence. You, you really had to know what you were selling. It wasn't so much like a, a, you know, a snazzy salesman kind of thing. And then by working on an institutional desk, I started focusing on a lot of non-public securities. And I started spending a lot of time with the firm's investment banking group. And I ended up getting recruited by them. And, and so through that, I, I went from selling products to instruments to creating them and working with the companies. And really, in terms of Wall Street, that's where I really found my place and my passion was in investment banking. And it was actually through that we had a client that I was very involved with. They were a public company and they uh, had a division that they were going to spin out. And one of the things that was missing for the spin out was a CFO. And they had been working with me and they looked and they're like, why don't you be the CFO? And I was like, okay, I never thought about that. And, and I took that position. It was with a, a telecom company. And, you know, as much as I loved investment banking, once I was in a company and doing all those things, that's when it really, for me, it felt like it really all came together. And, and I had found what I love to do. When did you come to realize that you love this? Was it a particular moment or conversation that really crystallized it for you? It's interesting. It, the, the moment that that happened, so the, the, that, you know, like many startups, they, they don't always end the way that you hope. And that one didn't. But it was at the end of it when I when it really, I had the choice, do I go back into investment banking, 
right? Because it, it wasn't really anticipated I would do this forever. This was kind of like a long-term assignment. And in fact, yeah. the, the firm that I left invited me back. And, and there was that moment like, well, do I go back to banking or do I find another one of these? <laughs> the irony is it, 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 the answer was I actually went to my next assignment was as a chief operating officer of a startup that combined both worlds. It was an investment banking startup that was focused on healthcare. And that was, at that time, if you recall, sort of back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was right then that online trading was really evolving. And so that was new, right? E-Trade was new. Ameritrade were new. There were thousands of online trading firms starting up. And we, we had this thesis to combine traditional investment banking, so focused in a sector, and really specializing deeply in it, and coupling that with an online trading offering that was also focused in that space, because we thought everybody trying to be everything to everyone, that was a tough model. And if you looked at traditional Wall Street, firms that focused on niches really did well. And so that's what we did. And so that let me, we both did investment banking transactions while building a company at the same time. And, and so, yeah, the, I guess the aha moment was, was at the end of the first one. And then the second one made it easy for me not to have to choose between the two. And then by the time I got to the third one, it was clear to me which side of the fence I was on. How did the startup go? You know, we ran smack dab into 9-11 yep. and we, we had raised money for the company, but we really funded most of our operations out of fees that we earned from, from transactions. Mm -hmm. And so when the, the trade centers went down, I don't know if you remember what that did to the capital markets. They were affected, I mean, because that was the epicenter of of the financial industry in New York, deal flow, like deals just stopped for, I guess, almost a year. And so it put us in a, in a position where the model we had been running, just we couldn't anymore. Though what was interesting is we had developed some really unique online tools that, you know, sort of when the dust settled, they had their own value. And so the company was able to continue just with some of the online tools. And the main one we made, which was really interesting, prior to us, there was no place to, to see the pipelines of all of the companies, all the drug development in the world. There was no single place where you could look at a particular disease and see all of the, the drugs that are in clinical trial for that, what phase they're in, and what the, the current status is. And because we were this focused online tool, we, we had gone to India, contracted with a group, and did the brute force of paying people to read all of the public disclosure documents for all of these public companies, because that's where all the information was buried, right? They had to provide quarterly updates on this drug is in this phase and this is what's happened. And, and then we had that all manually compiled into a searchable database. And that company on its own actually ended up getting sold to, to a data provider. But so that was, that was a curious kind of pivot and evolution. That would allow 
for example, an investor, institutional or individual, to put together a, a, a sort of a disease portfolio or a, I guess a, a cure portfolio? It wasn't just a tool for investors. It was a tool for people in the industry as well, at, in executive levels, for researchers, because it was the first time you could have a full view of drug development on a global scale by indication, by company. So you could pick a company and you could see all the drugs they had in development, what phase they were in, and see the latest update on, on each of them. So if you're looking at investing in a biotech company, for example, not only could you see where they were, you could then drill down and say, okay, they're going after these applications in these areas. Who are their competitors, right? You could then click on the indication and you could see all the companies that are developing drugs for that. And your company might be in phase one, but there might be five that are in phase three, right? And so believe it or not, before that tool, you would have to have manually, personally gone through all of the publicly available data to figure that out. It was a great learning experience. I, I got to meet and do business with so many different companies in that space. And then through developing the tool, really getting a, a deep understanding of, of the drug development process and what it takes, both from time and a financial standpoint. One of our clients was one of the largest uh, companies that managed the double blind process which was also fascinating, right? You always hear about these double-blind studies. Do you ever think about how is it that the double-blind is maintained? And there are companies that, that that's all that they do. And they're, they're enormous. <laughs> and I gained a lot of respect for the thoroughness and the intensity of the drug development process that, that biotech and pharma go through. And I do think that that's informed a lot of how I view developing products from, from cannabis. And are there blind spots to the industry as well as, I mean, it, it is an incredible innovation and risk management engine. It, it's fantastic, right? It pulls together yes. so many disciplines and so many elements of technology and it's, it's an incredible space. Does it also create blind spots? So now we're going to wade into uh, regulatory. I have to be careful about what I say here just because of, of, of laws. So the, the key starting assumption for most, not all, but most of pharmaceutical therapies is that you're using something that's going to kill something or that could kill a person, right? And if you start with something that's dangerous or has the ability to be dangerous, you clearly need a very rigorous system to protect people, right? I mean, nobody's going to argue about that. <laughs> and that's how pharma has developed. The, the, the place where that creates a hole is when you have something like cannabis, right? And the and just for clarity, the official FDA position on cannabis is it is not known if it is safe, right? The the FDA does does not believe that it's safe. They're questioning whether it's safe. And so from a legal perspective, that is the law of the land. 
what we have in a counter to that is is you you have uh, marijuana right which is cannabis which has been used as an illicit drug extensively globally broadly and has been studied as an illegal drug and in fact in the 2020 report from the DEA on substance abuse marijuana is of course listed and they of course list how many you know it's widely abused and but the key thing is it's never killed anybody right there is even to this day we don't have the first known death caused by marijuana and it's it's the reason for that is simple the the it does not cannabis the extracts of cannabis do not have access to life sustaining functions in the body right so when a poison kills you it's shutting down either your respiratory pulmonary or brain function right that's how it kills you that's what makes it a poison cannabis even in enormous doses at most it can make you uncomfortable right now that doesn't mean you should drive a vehicle or operate heavy machinery because you shouldn't but cannabis by itself does not have the ability to kill a person and if you're going to develop something like that it actually if, again if, if on the one hand you're you're starting with a substance that you know can kill people you need to set up a very rigorous system to make sure that your experiments with that don't kill anybody right if on the other hand you're developing something from a substance that can you know this is not the law of the land but again it's never been recorded that has never killed anybody and has been widely observed to have tremendous this is all anecdotal but you know we have people have observed very significant results from consuming cannabis products and so if you want to study that right if you want to find out about that it doesn't work in a system designed to make sure you don't kill yourself because you have a lot more freedom which means you can you don't have to have the same safety precautions and and it's not that safety is imp isn't important it's that safety has a large cost to it right so today the average drug that comes to market it costs the pharmaceutical companies about 2.3 billion dollars it takes about 12 years to get through that development process and they have about a 12 percent success rate so at those costs have to end up in our healthcare system there's because the pharmaceutical companies have to go and raise money they have to have investors they have to provide a return this doesn't this there's no judgment in that that's just an economic fact and so that's how that system was developed if on the other hand you can start with something that in hundreds if not thousands of years of use has never killed anybody and has been observed across the globe to have tremendous positive impact on people with with hundreds of different indications you have an opportunity to significantly shrink the time and the cost 
right? So instead of 12 years and $2.3 billion, you can use existing protocols and studies with the beginning input point that do no harm, right? You can safely feel that you can do that. That's an opinion, not a fact. And develop in a method that costs less than a million dollars in in less than a year's time, it's really a, a complete paradigm shift, right? Theoretically, you could develop therapeutics with significant impact, much faster and a much lower cost, which when you apply that to healthcare costs globally, would significantly reduce the overall cost of keeping people healthy. Does intellectual property, the the superstructure surrounding intellectual property get involved here as well? Going back to this notion of a blind spot, 12 years, over $2 billion of development costs. How do you, how do you protect your art, your returns on that as a, as an investor? And part of that, I think gets to intellectual property. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And and obviously if you're going to invest that kind of money and you're going to get people to, to, to give that to you, they need to know that when you get to the end, you're the only person that owns it. (laughs) And that has also caused a situation where to be successful, to have intellectual property, you have to have something novel, something new. You can't just go out and pretend that you discovered an orange tree. <laughs> and so what that's done is really focused the bulk of pharmaceutical development on, on what's referred to as single molecules, right? Yeah. Something new that can be synthesized in the lab that, that you then own it from an intellectual property standpoint. And so, yes, that creates an entire infrastructure around a company owning a patent to a molecule that has been proven, and now they're the only ones you can buy it from because they have to recoup that investment. Yes, that definitely has an impact. What's the transition point to where you are today? So, you know, it wasn't a straight line. And, and you know, so the my work in and around pharma was in the early 2000s. You know, we're now here in 2020. I've, I've been involved in, I guess, seven or eight other companies in between then and now. I, I did have a lot of, ex- through some of them, I had a lot of exposure to intellectual property. And, and also the, the way that that gets played out in reality. And what I mean by that is intellectual property as it's practiced globally really significantly favors large organizations over inventors. I know we always have this story of the guy who invents something in his basement and he gets a patent and he gets rich. It's not really how it plays out. And it also, that leaning towards larger organizations does stifle innovation ultimately, right? Because it removes the reward for that person in their basement because usually their invention will be absorbed, but not to their benefit. In terms of from there to here, I guess the step that that's missing in that part of the story is, you know, so I I was an investment banker. I was on a desk at the, at the beginning of the internet and I didn't get it. You know, all this talk about microtransactions and eyeballs and, and traffic, none of that had anything to do with like revenue and money and stuff. (laughs) 
And I, I, you know, being fairly rooted in simple business basics, I, I understand businesses where there's an exchange of something tangible. It's just, it's easier for me, my personality, but I did miss the opportunity of the internet and, and, and the industry that exploded and came from there. I mean, if you would have told me back in 1998, that a, an online bookstore was going to be worth 10 times as much as IBM, it probably would have taken me two days to get off the floor from laughing. You know, if you were pitching me that, but look today, that's true. Right. And so when cannabis started to happen and I had been spending a lot of time in Colorado and I saw they, they, they were the first state to go legal with recreational marijuana use and that kind of caught my attention. I was like, is this real? Is this really going to happen? And, you know, in the beginning, I, I probably had the bias that most people do in that, you know, all, all this marijuana talk, all this medical marijuana talk, that's just people who want to get high. Right. And, and there's no medical value. People like to get high. It's fun. Let them get high. Let them have fun. But as, as it started to, as, as it started to more and more and more information came out. And as, as I started to meet people who were, you know, talking about this, I had, that's when I had an, oh my God moment. There's something about this. This isn't just about people having a good time. And then I was introduced to a lot of the research that's been done in Israel. And Israel has been studying uh, true clinical use of cannabis for 20 years now. And in fact, if you're a patient with a, with a, a certain indication in Israel, you're going to be prescribed cannabis as part of your treatment. It's just a standard protocol. I started to look into the history of the plant in terms of pre-prohibition and the realization that that hemp was an integral part of global commerce, that the, the, the United States, when it was founded, our, our founding documents are written on hemp hemp paper, all of the, the sails, the ropes, the, it, that the, the ships that founded the, the new world were all made out of hemp, that we paid our original taxes from the colonies to the crown in hemp. <laughs> that the, the settling of the West, that every farmer everywhere in, in, a, in the Americas grew hemp because it was like the Swiss army knife crop. We fed it to our animals. We made our clothes out of it. We built our, our structures out of it. The covered wagons, that's all hemp. <laughs> we had hemp biofuels. It was a worldwide commodity that got snuffed out through legal and political actions that are now starting to evaporate. And so you can see that 10, 20 years from now, again, hemp will be in everything and everywhere. And so as an industry, cannabis broadly, from a banker's perspective, is probably the single business industry opportunity in our lifetime. Given that range of applications, how do you pick the right place to be? There's the core product development, the base material piece, but that's not where I think you've, you've seen the opportunity. Where, where is the opportunity to focus and get things done? And along the way, by the way, is, that, is part of that decision mission-based as well as economic? Given my background, my training, when I entered the industry, the question you're asking was the question on my mind. Back in 2016, when I made the decision, I knew I didn't know anything. What I, I dove in with both feet. <laughs> and I, I wanted to be in operating. There were a lot of uh, professionals like me who were trying to, to be in non-plant touching or, or ancillary services because it was safer because of some of the federal confusion. 
but I really wanted to roll up my sleeves and get all the way in and answer the question you were asking. The, the biggest part of the market was recreational marijuana. I dove into that. I eventually ended up being a co-founder in what is, is today's Oregon's largest independent wholesaler of recreational marijuana. I'm, I'm, I'm still involved with the company. And in that company, we did business with hundreds of farms, dozens of companies making products. We sold the products to the dispensaries. And what was unique about it, what is unique about it is it's a physical marketplace. And so all day long, I had the opportunity to interact with farmers and buyers and makers and, and users. And also when we started the company, I, I got to go to close to about 200 different farms and meet the owners and hear their stories and understand about the plant. And through that, I got a very, very deep understanding of the plant and how to make products and, and what makes a product good. Going back to your question, this is a huge industry. There's all this opportunity. Where's the right place to be? It was through that and all these people's stories that I really came to the conclusion that the that clinician-directed use, right? Use by people who are ill to treat that illness, which we can't do. We can't say that there's no regulatory framework for that. But once there is, that is the biggest and most important market to focus on first. Because we live in a society where, where healthcare costs are staggering and unsustainable. And we have people that suffer that this plant can help. And so to me, that is the most exciting, most important part of the industry to be focused on. I think we've we've rounded out the story nicely. Is there anything that you feel like we've missed and left out today? It's a nice arc, I think. Quickly, cannabis is the overarching name of the plant, right? And then, then we have categories, right? So marijuana is a subcategory of cannabis. Hemp is a subcategory of, of, of cannabis, but it's all cannabis. But cannabis is not a single thing. It is a complex commodity with thousands of varieties, and it makes unique compounds that are not available in any other plants in nature. And humans have a relationship with the plant because we literally co-evolved with it. When you peel away prohibition and you look at the real history of the plant and how intimately this human story is woven with, with cannabis, and then you have to overlay the complexities, right? My favorite example of a, of, a, of a complex commodity is fish, right? You've probably seen, you know, the Seattle fish market, right? And, and you've probably in your life went to buy fish, right? And a fish is not a fish as a fish, right? There's hundreds of different fish. There's lots of different qualities of fish. And so if you want to deal with fish and you want to know about fish, there's a lot to learn. Cannabis is probably a hundred times more complex than the fish problem. And so when we try to kind of fit it in this one bucket that cannabis is this one thing, it's a tomato, it really doesn't work. It's highly complex. It makes hundreds of unique compounds. And so as we sit here today in 2020, I would say we're not even scratching the tip of this iceberg. I'm really excited about what's still to unfold. And I think it's gonna take several generations 
for this story to really be where, where it's headed. Fish and cannabis. That's an optimistic way to bring this podcast to a close. Now recall, the reason that we started this series of podcasts was to explore why people are inspired to, to join mission-driven organizations. For Isaac, his commitment to the mission of Andourage, the company of which he is the chief executive, is to reimagine health. It seems to be driven by the promise of abundant possibility, that there's a feeling that we're missing out on something great. It's a promise that's just right there, right outside of our grasp. Maybe there's just a little bit of subversion as well to right some historical wrongs. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Isaac Foster, our guest today, for our theme music, as well as for music for makers. I look forward to your comments online. Bye-bye.